everybody. This is Biblically Speaking. I just want to welcome you all to my podcast. I believe this is our fourth one. So if you made it to this one, it sounds like you like it. Um, and if you're new here, I really appreciate you joining. Just a little bit about Biblically Speaking is I started this about a month ago because when I was just joining my Christian hood journey, <laughs> I found myself asking quite a bit of questions that the church couldn't or wouldn't answer just because for me to fully love and fully give my life to something, I need some background. I need some context. And if we're going to talk about Paul in church, who's Paul? Why is he writing letters? What's going on that these letters were such a big deal? I had questions and I still do. So I wanted to love Jesus, but I had to know him first. So I started Biblically Speaking, where I am the confused and curious Christian. I have no talent here except for my, my questions and my confusion. So I find PhDs and I find theologian experts and I make them sit down with me and I make them answer all my questions. And my guests are amazing and they are so well-read and Sometimes they're professors, sometimes they're pastors, but at the end of the day, they are people that know and study the word. So they can know the translations of Aramaic and Hebrew in ways that just make the word more fulfilling. Because once you do understand the Bible, it just goes deeper and deeper. And so does the love. And once the Bible is accessible and understandable, so is God's love in a way that wasn't before. And I'm just going to tell you that there's no downsides to knowing God more and experiencing more of his love. So if you're listening, thank you so much for joining. If you've been listening, thank you so much for coming back. Thank you for sharing. Um, I also just want to let everyone know that if you are following us on Instagram, I look at every single one of you that start following me. I mean, we're a very small account right now. I think we're at like two or 300 people, but just the growth over the last 10 days, I think is since the first reel it has been amazing. You know, these Instagram stats are crazy. I think we've reached like 23,000 people have at least like viewed or commented or shared or anything. I just like this journey is to uplift God, to make him bigger and make me smaller. So this isn't really like a personal pat on the bat or like a personal PR. It's more so just amazing that, you know, when God calls you to something, it's for a reason. And I just feel like even if you're like hating in my comments, I love it. Thank you so much for just like having an opinion about things and sharing it. I thought that being public about your faith would be terrifying and cringy and I lose friends for some reason, but I haven't. I've gained more. I've enriched my current friendships and I'm just grateful that like God is allowing me to do this. Anyways, that's what we're doing. Um, this week, we're going to talk to Robert Miller, who is also a professor. And the topic is the focus of John and John, not the Baptist, John, the disciple. They are two different people. And my questions are, who's John? Why is he special? What's going on? Well, who was John before Jesus? Who was John after Jesus? Was there any special relationship between him and Jesus? You know, was he a favorite? Was he a least favorite? I want to know all of it. I want to know what John would look like if he was friends today. Would he be like a skateboarder? Would he be like a podcast bro? <laughs> would he be a business bro? Would he be like super granola? I want to know. I want to personify John. And then maybe one day I can act like John. I'm gonna, I don't know. Anyways, thanks so much for listening. I swear I'm going to get these shorter. But uh, also if I sound really good, it's because I got a new mic. And I feel like my past couple podcasts, I was cutting out a couple of times. So sorry. Finally made an investment in a mic. Um, 
anyways, thanks so much for joining and uh, enjoy. <laughs> Hello, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining me today. We've got uh, Dr. Robert Miller on the call today, who is a, you know, I'll just let you introduce yourself. <laughs> okay, I'll do that. Uh, uh, I'm Robert Miller, as uh, Cash has said, and um, I uh, am an associate professor of religious studies at Mount St. Mary College in Newburgh, New York, where I teach a variety of courses. I teach uh, Intro to Biblical Studies, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, Gospel of John, Book of Revelation. Uh, those are all in my discipline. Plus, I also teach some other things like uh, uh, theology of film, introduction to Christian prayer, world religions, um, and um, uh, Beyond Narnia. It's a course on C.S. Lewis, which I created myself, which I really enjoy. That's amazing. So, yeah. Yes, yeah, C.S. Lewis is amazing. So this is your life's work, or was this after something? Well, um, that's a great question because, um, you know, when I was um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, you know, in, in high school, the, the last thing that I ever thought I would do was go to college. I hated oh. school from first grade on. I was a terrible student. Uh, my dad told me, he said, you fail one thing, you're off the wrestling team. So that meant 70 was my benchmark. And so I have a tr high school transcript filled with 70s. And um, uh, so I never thought about going to college until I felt like I was uh, called to priesthood. I was called cool. to seminary. And um, at what age was that? 22. I was a 22-year-old freshman. And... Um, so there I started studying something finally that I enjoyed, and that was studying about God and, and learning about God and, uh, uh, you know, preparing for a life of ministry, which uh, I decided against. Um, I discerned that that was not quite, but I, but I fell in love with theology at the time. So then I went on for my master's degree. Uh, I had studied my undergrad at the University of Scranton uh, in Pennsylvania, where I majored philosophy and theology. And then went on for theology at uh, Seton Hall University. And then I did my PhD in biblical studies at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Wow. So, but uh, no, I never thought that I would, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of PhDs, uh, professors, they have what they call imposter syndrome. I definitely suffer from imposter syndrome. It's the whole idea. It's like, what am I doing here with all these smart people? You know, so, but I found out that there are other people here too that, that suffer from that same syndrome and I consider them quite smart. So not that I belong, but I'm just saying. <laughs> hey, I think it's natural to have doubts, but you took a very yeah. unique approach to it. I mean, Christianity and film, introductory to prayer, C.S. Lewis, that's pretty far reaching. Yeah. Well, um, I really like the cultural aspects too, you know, like some things like theology and film and, and, beyond Narnia, C.S. Lewis. I mean, it's a, uh, we find God in all things and in all ways. Right. So, yeah. um, so I, what I like teaching about theology and film is that there's these, these ordinary movies, you know, which people would not think are necessarily religious and they're not overly religious, but they contain that, uh, that theme of Christianity of the hero, you know, like yeah. what is a, a Hollywood Christ figure look like, you know? And uh, so I, I'll show things like Beauty and the Beast, you know, or um, uh, Sleeping Beauty is another 
great one from Disney. Then shows like the Truman show and things like that. They have these really wonderful themes in these movies, which have a great message. And from that, from that movie, then you can just use that as a springboard to talk about Christian theology. Wow. You didn't say any of the examples I thought you would. I thought you would for sure say the matrix, you know, with like the chosen one. Yeah. Um, that's certainly a possibility. That's along the lines of Superman too. You know, it's a, Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, but there's tons of movies that, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that you can bring in there. Uh, so, you know, I try to do, I try to keep them interesting, you know? And, yeah, uh, absolutely. And yeah. I love that you're taking a very covert way to Christianity rather than like, you know, starting with Noah or, you know, the, the passion of the Christ, you know, those are in your face Christian. And I would argue those right. are some of the better Christian movies compared yeah. to some of the other ones out there. But yeah, That's I think correct. that is good practice to kind of see the story of the hero and Christ as the hero and more things. I mean, arguably right. it's more Christian music that isn't in your face Christian, but still is worshiping someone and is a love song. Some right. of the better Christian songs. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> what's the song of songs? You know, it's, it's love poetry at its, at its root, you know, oh. and, and it, you know, it doesn't mention God, but it's all about God at the same yeah. time. So it's, it's uh, really beautiful. So, so I love that intersection between theology and culture and uh, things yeah. like that. And spirituality. That is amazing. And yeah. revelations. I mean, that is a whole other podcast that I may or may not drag you back for because I, <laughs> that's a whole. We'll I see have... how this one goes first, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we'll see. Bird is still out, but oh my gosh, Revelation in itself. I mean, I spoke to a pastor in Southern California, and he was talking about Revelation is one big revelation that God is. You know, everything within that book is really just to bring heaven down to earth. But I think exactly. that a lot of people get caught up in the plagues and the fire and the Antichrist. I mean, I definitely do. I used to have nightmares about it as a kid. Yeah, yeah. It's um. Um, there's so many different ways of interpreting the book, you know, and I think some, I mean, they each have their own benefit. Uh, I just think that some are probably more um, legitimate than others. Um, but um, I think you always kind of want to begin with, okay, what was the author trying to say? You know, just let's just start with that. What was the yeah. symbolism he was using? What was the imagery? What's the literary form that he's writing in? You know, Absolutely. And just begin with that uh, before we um, start coming up with a date for the end of the world. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely, you know, another conversation, but just sure. kind of on that same topic of who is the author. Let's talk about John. Sure. So um, you specialize in John mostly from the wedding in Cana or? Yeah, my doctoral dissertation was on uh, Jesus's response to his mother at the wedding at Cana. So Which is quite it, con controversy. Yeah, well, yeah. I'll tell you, when I knew I had a dissertation, um, I was uh, translating John from the Greek. And I said, well, let me see, because there's no verb in the phrase, you know, in the Greek, it says tiamoi kai soi, and there's no verb there, right? So I was just curious. I looked at an English translation and said, oh, okay, what does this one say? And that one was different. I like that third. I go up to 12 different 
uh, English translations and all of them had a different translation. And just so, for a little bit of context, do you mind just overviewing what exactly the verse you're translating? Uh, yes, it was um, uh, verse three says, um, uh, uh, well, it's uh, when the wine ran short, right? And then Jesus's mother says to him, um, they have no wine. That's verse three. They have no wine. And Jesus responds to her with this Hebrew idiom, which is Mali Valak in the Hebrew and Timoi Kaisoi in the Greek. And um, he says, literally, what to me and to you? That's So there's no verb there. So if you're going to translate it literally, it's what to me and to you. And so all these English translations kind of force the translator's opinion into the text. You know, and that's why you have 12 different translations. Now, what's really interesting is that same Greek phrase that the Hebrew idiom translated into Greek occurs elsewhere, uh, like it occurs twice in Mark's gospel. But of those same 12 translations, they only come up with two different translations. So it's, it's very interesting how controversial the wedding at Cana has become with that with the translation of that uh, Absolutely. idiom in uh, John 2, 4. Yeah. In John 2, 4, I almost want to bring up the verse, but this is the verse where he kind of refers to his mother as woman. Yes, that's right. That's the second part of the uh, verse. So it's, what is it to me and to you, O woman, my hour has not yet come. So he right. refers to his mother as woman. And I think that a lot of almost English speakers in the English translation is why is he speaking to his mother that way? Right. But see, we're, we're reading that as 21st century, you know, Americans. It's Absolutely. Not, not derogatory at all. It's quite respectful uh, at that time. And if you look at um, the John's gospel, you see he refers to all women that way, you know, woman at the well, it was refers to her as woman. So would that um, be like a not... modern day equivalent of like, ma'am? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. See, context matters. Absolutely. It does. So that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So the woman, uh, the, the wedding in Cana, but John is just writing from his perspective. So could we just kind of step back and sure. Can you give me a little bit of background on, like, why does John get his own book? Where did John, like, why did John have a place in the Bible? And then just kind of like, who was John before Jesus? Was he a fisherman? Was he yeah. homeless? Yeah. Was he rich? Yeah. So um, John uh, was a fisherman. We know that from all four Gospels. We know that uh, he and his older brother, he had an older brother, James, who was also one of the 12, and that uh, they were the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee was their father. So, mm. um, and they had a little, their own little fishing business, right? And um, Some young entrepreneurs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that was kind of tough to do uh, in the ancient world, particularly in that Ooh. part of the world. It wasn't... Uh, um, you know, like we, we fish for sport here. We, we fish for relaxation. You know, there's no, it was a job back then, you know, like survival. Um, that's right. So it was real kind of serious business. Uh, it, it, the, the job itself involved, not just catching the fish, but, you know, also, you know, salting them, you know, gutting um, them, um, 
you know, it, it involves selling them, uh, fixing nets, fixing sales. There was a whole business to it, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the there's all there was all different ways of catching fish too. I mean, like we use hooks. That's our common way that when we go fishing by ourselves with a fishing pole, you know, and yeah. you know, we we can watch things like deadliest catch and things like that which really kind of glamorizes you know the whole industry but um you know it was a real occupation in cana and galilee uh in in galilee i mean i got cana on the brain here right now but um fishing served really kind of as as a major a major industry and um because of the availability of the, the Sea of Galilee, which was the only freshwater lake, you know, in the area, right? So, unfortunately, uh, the fishermen uh, and the associated tradesmen with them uh, were pretty much kept in poverty. Uh, the, the fee for fishing rights was quite high. Uh, and, you know, on top of that, you know, the, the sale of fish... Uh, and fish products was was farmed out by King Herod, you know, mm-hmm. to to middlemen, you know, who took their cut and they took mm-hmm. a very high cut. And so it right. wound up keeping the people who did the real hard work in poverty. So that's John's background, you know. Um, so I, I, I always wondered, you know, what Zebedee must have felt when his two sons abandoned him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe he had more sense, but it's like, hey, you know, this is the family business here, you know. So, uh, so I always wondered what what his yeah. reaction would have been. Like, I love you, that you're following the Messiah, but like, could you have like that's found right. a replacement? <laughs> that's right. Um, could you get, okay, so he was more me. like a a poor lower lower class, not lower middle class. You know, yeah. under the Roman Empire, was they he were laborers? That's what oh, they were, like, and just laborers, poverty. and uh, yeah, I mean, everyone was poor, you know. Yeah, uh, the, yeah. the, to, to it's tough to talk about, you know, any any real middle class there because you had yeah. the wealthy, and you know, but but everyone was uh, kind of struggling to 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 get what they can, you know. So uh, so you know, being a fisherman, you know, they struggle. It was hard work to make a living, and we also know something about their mother, though. John's uh, mother. Um, remember, Jesus um, calls James and John sons of thunder. Oh, if you're familiar with that title, yeah, he calls them oh, no. sons of thunder. And you know, a lot of people say, "Well, that's you know because they were you know strong, powerful men, kind of thing." You know, but there's this one scene in the Gospels and occurs in two Gospels, and in one of them. Uh, the mother of James and John goes up to Jesus and says, when you come into your kingdom, I want one son at your right hand and the other one at your left hand. You know, that's pretty, that verse? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's pretty brazen, right? So uh, I think she's the thunder. <laughs> that's why they're sons of thunder. So, you know, but, you know, that's just speculation. There's no evidence on that. But I but, mean, a uh, strong woman has to raise a bunch of sons. So that right. makes sense. Sh- and those sons are kept son. in check by her. So they clearly <laughs> respect right. women. That's so right. I don't know. I mean, obviously, the mom's a firecracker. But would you say that they sound young? I mean, let's start there. How old were how old was John and James? We 
don't know for certain, um, but it is, we, we do know that James was older okay. and we know that John was the youngest of the apostles and he okay. was likely a teenager, you know, when he started following Jesus. So like 13 or 18, what do you mean by uh, teenager? That's a good question, but he was okay. uh, probably, probably on the older side of teenager. You know, I, I doubt that he would have been, you know, um, in the young teens, but you know, people grew up quickly then. So, (laughs) okay. So a teenager leaves his home with his brother and starts following the Messiah. So somebody that comes up is performing miracles. Did Jesus perform miracles to kind of get them on board or, you know, what was their first interaction with Jesus? Well, you know, that's a, that's a good question about why does Jesus perform miracles? Because the, the, the gospels really give two different answers for that. Oh. Um, you know, in the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, remember there's this one scene where it says Jesus. Um, I'm sorry, what does synoptic gospels synoptic, mean? The word synoptic refers to the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mm-hmm. those three gospels because they tell basically the same story with oh. some differences. Um, like for example, there are um, the infancy narratives are found only in Matthew and Luke, right? Of Jesus being born. Right. But Matthew and Luke tell very different stories, right? Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of the Magi that's in Matthew's gospel. Uh, it's Joseph that Matthew's gospels where Joseph is having dreams and he knows to take the child and his mother to Egypt and he knows when to return because of the dreams. That's nothing. There's that doesn't occur in Luke. Luke is the, you know, they're going to, uh, Bethlehem because of the census and there's no room for them at the inn, and the, the shepherds witness the angel and they're greatly afraid and the angel speaks to them and calms them and, uh, so there's two very different stories, right? Mm. But when you look at the life of Jesus in the in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the word synoptic itself means to see together or to see with. So you can put them, in, and this has been done in books, we call them uh, gospel parallels, where you can put the three stories in columns, right? And you can see that they're telling the same story, but they're telling some things differently. There's some points of interest which are different. And you can see that in John's gospel as well, because there are certain stories that, such as John chapter six, which that story of the feeding of the 5,000 occurs in all four gospels, right? And that's yeah. that's very rare that that happens. Yeah. Um, so when you look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's one story where it says Jesus went, but uh, he could perform no miracles there because of their lack of faith, right? Mm. So in, in some contexts, the miracles are uh, performed based upon faith. Whereas in John's gospel, he doesn't use the word miracles. He used the word signs, right? And that oh. word signs really has a, a deep meaning in Judaism because it really kind of recalls the Exodus and uh, Israel's uh, salvation from, from slavery, right? Yeah. Uh, so, um, so the signs are performed not based on faith, but to bring people to faith. In fact, John even makes that statement at the end of his gospel. He says, "Now Jesus did many other things, 
that are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that you may have life in his name. Right. So, um, so, you know, why does Jesus perform miracles? Well, it all depends on who you're reading, you know? So some, sometimes uh, they were performed based upon someone's faith and other times the signs, the, the, the other miracles were done to bring people to faith. So, I, yeah, I absolutely know what you're talking about. I feel like, yeah, a lot of times it is because of your faith, you know, the woman that touched just the hem of his coat yes. or the man that sent his um, soldier to, you know, talk to Jesus to heal his sons. But That's right. then again, you have women at the well who has no idea who Jesus is, but here he is telling her all about her life and she has faith right. in that. Right, right, exactly. That, it's so um, it sounds like the perspectives from every gospel matter, just the way that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John viewed Jesus individually, they all differed. And it sounds like from John's perspective, he adored Jesus. Wasn't he the one that saw Jesus as Messiah? So one saw Jesus as man, one saw him as the son of God, one saw him as the Messiah. Am I getting that correctly? Yeah, I yeah. I can look it up. So if, if no, 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 you're absolutely right. In, in fact, um, if you really, the what we call the Christologies of each gospel, so that's you know, what is their portrait of Jesus? What is their portrait of Jesus? How is he portrayed? It really all comes from their uh, perspective on the crucifixion. You know, those are really the, the oldest parts of the gospel. So so in, in Matthew's gospel, you, you look at the crucifixion and the whole trial. And what is Jesus? He's, he's the, the royal Messiah, right? He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. What, what about the, the portrait of Jesus in Mark's gospel? Well, he's the abandoned Messiah. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me, right? Then if you go to Luke's gospel, um, um, what, what's the portrait of Jesus on the cross? He's the forgiving Jesus. He's the merciful Jesus. He's the, he's the Jesus telling the, the, um, the good thief, as we call him, you know, I assure you this day you will be with me in paradise. And he, and he, uh, as they're mocking him and he says, Father, forgive them. Those are only in Luke. That, that, wow. those passages. And, and then what happens when you come to John? What's the portrait of John uh, or the portrait of Jesus in John's gospel? He is, um, he is certainly divine. Um, uh, he is, uh, he's, the, he is the, the, Messiah who is always in control. And I always, uh, there was, there was a, uh, there was a, uh, a Budweiser commercial. I'm going, I'm going to make this really, you know, simple. I, but many years ago, uh, probably back in the 1980s, there was a, a Budweiser commercial with, with this one dog and the dog's name was Spuds McKenzie. Right. And the dog, of course, you know, in a, in a beer commercial, it was surrounded by beautiful women. This dog was, right? And the whole point of the commercial was to say that he's a party animal, but he's always in control. And I, I'm like, that is the Jesus of John's gospel. <laughs> he's this party. At, he, where is he? He opens up and you see he's at a wedding banquet, right? 
he's at a wedding banquet. He's producing wine. There's so much wine there. You know, it's, they fill it to the brim, right? And, you know, what happened? He did a multiplication of loaves. There's 12 baskets left over, right? But what happens? This is the key to understanding the Jesus in John. He's in control of all the events of his life, right? He is on trial before Pontius Pilate. And Pilate says to him, do you not know that I have the power to release you or the power to crucify you? Now remember, up to this point, Jesus has been totally silent, not answering a thing. And when he hears that, he says, you would have no power over you if it were, if it were not given to you from above. So he's like, you don't that know what That is a wild is. thing to say to yes, like, when you're on the trial. guy in charge. That's right, when you're on <laughs> trial. And when does Jesus die? He doesn't die until he says it is finished, right? He's in wow. control of everything right up to the very moment of his death. And so that's yeah. the Jesus that is portrayed in John's gospel. You know, he's, um, he's alive. He's with it. He is God become man and he is in total control. You want to know what, what do you, what do you take out of that? You know, it's like, okay, my life is <laughs> madness, right? But God is the one that's in control, right? So, so this picture that you get from, from John uh, of Jesus is uh, very reassuring, you know? Yeah. It's arguably the best book to start with. Yes. That's that's a good way of uh, putting it. That's correct. Yeah. Because, I mean, it sounds like, so just to kind of sum it up, John is a 16-year-old kid. Let's just go with that because that's a pretty prominent time in your life. Yeah. A six-year-old kid, he's working hard. If he lived in 2023, he would be kind of working like a dog. He'd probably be like a mechanic, do you feel like? Just like kind of working all night, working all day, just like working hard for his family. <laughs> he's a tradesman. Right. So he's a, he's a tradesman, a tradesman, okay. you know? So okay. yeah. whatever that could be plumber, that could be, uh, you know, electrician, bricklayer. Oh yeah. I would kill to be a plumber electrician. Those guys get paid so much. <laughs> I know. John would be doing well today, actually. <laughs> John, yes, you're right. Yes. He certainly would. Okay. Be. So he's very young. He's working very hard. He's skilled and he meets Jesus with his brother and Jesus performs a miracle for them. Or how does Jesus kind of, I don't want to say convert, but kind of get him on his team. Oh, well, it's all, all the result of John the Baptist. We can thank John the Baptist for that because he's not the John we're talking about. No, he's a different John. That's correct. So, um, but John, uh, the evangelist, John, the fisherman, John, the brother of James and uh, sons of Zebedee and sons of thunder they were followers of the Baptist and, um, and the Baptist uh, was a pretty radical guy. He was. And, and so he was very attractive and, um, uh, John or the Baptist. Uh, John, the Baptist is the one I was talking about. <laughs> you mean attractive as like his message, just the Lord people, or do you think physically attractive? If you're, I thought if, he looked wild. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, but that's an attractive thing, right? Right. When you see someone acting you know, wild, you, you know, it's like a train wreck, you know, you, you can't take your eyes off. It. So, so I, you just have to look, things, well, I guess so. <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, but he, um, 
So he was in. He was like, he was, this is good. Yeah. I love but John he's, the Baptist. He's, he's preaching cool repentance. Things. John the Baptist is. He's preaching repentance. And um, he's out in the wilderness. And uh, John is a tra- John the evangelist. John the son of Zebedee, we'll call him for now, is, okay. is attracted to him. And remember, it's, um, it is uh, John the Baptist is the one who points to Jesus as the Messiah. And he says, you guys got to follow him now. Okay. Mm-hmm. He must increase and I must decrease. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so we can thank John for, uh, thank John the Baptist for John and James coming to follow Jesus. Right. Uh, and it's very mm-hmm. interesting. Um, and this is another thing that you can, that we, we can take with us. Cause you, the first words of Jesus, when he sees them following and he says, what are you looking for? Think about that. The first words of Jesus in John's gospel are, what are you looking for? And that's, that is the question that he asks all of us, right? Yeah. So, um, and their response is what our response should be. It's like, where are you staying? You know? And then he, <laughs> and then he says, come and see. You know, those are the, the yeah, those are the first words of, of Jesus. It's like the most down to get down conversation I've ever heard in my life. That's right. Yeah. What do you want? Wherever you want. All right, let's go. <laughs> That's right. So. Okay, so they were actually, so local guys, laborers, following John the Baptist. So they were like in search of something bigger than themselves. They were already following John the Baptist, who at that time was seen as a radical. I mean, he was wearing a loincloth, he's eating bugs and eating raw honey, he's baptizing people, he's saying just as crazy things of his cousin Jesus. And then when his when he points at Jesus and says, no, this is the guy you want to follow, they just kind of pivot and start going with Jesus. Right. So he points him out. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. Right. Now, that that's now for you and me, it was like, <laughs> you know, if you're calling some guy a lamb, like, I don't know if that's someone like <laughs> now you call him the goat. Right. Today, you call someone the goat. What's that? Mean? He's the greatest of all time. It's like, you know, how times have changed. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah. To, be, to be when you're called the lamb, you know, that meant something uh, for the Israelites. You know, the lambs uh, offered for the sacrifice, you know, and uh, the Passover lamb, uh, the lambs in the temple. Um, that's so that's a that's not just. um John the Baptist talking about Jesus's personality. Oh, he's, he's, he's mild as a lamb. No, no, no. That's a Christological title that he's giving him right there. That's, that's, that's identifying who he is as the Christ, you know? So, so would be calling someone a lamb back then mean that you were gentle or that be like, you are the pinnacle, the quintessential, you are the best of the best. Well, also there is that symbolic that he is the lamb sent from God, the sacrificial lamb. Do people typically call each other lambs back then? I don't think so. No, I've never been any, (laughs) anything about that. I don't think so. So, but it's just a strange thing to call someone. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, the, the other thing is when you look at chapter one there in John's gospel, where, he gives him this title you see that there's all if we had nothing else we had just chapter one of john's gospel we didn't have anything from chapter two to the end we had no other gospels we would know an awful lot about what the early church thought about who jesus was just by the titles that they give him in chapter one 
You can just go through it. And he's, I don't know how many titles, I forget how many titles he's given. You know, you are, you are the king of Israel. You are, you know, uh, you know, son of God, you know, or you're, you're all these different, like they're escaping me right now, but because it just popped into my head that like, you have all these different titles that uh, are, you're the one uh, spoken about in Moses and the prophets, you know? Um, so we would know an awful lot about yeah. who he is just from, just from chapter one. Yeah. Chapter one, verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote Jesus of Nazareth, 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 the son of Joseph. Yeah. Yeah. He's called rabbi, you know, he's, 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 here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Yeah. I guess what a brag. <laughs> oh <my> gosh. <laughs> what an intro. Okay. So I just, I love this. I feel like the, the book of John is just full of love and it's like steeping with love, but also because it seemed like Jesus liked John more than he liked the others. Isn't, isn't um, John the one that Jesus loved and he like outwardly says that, that this is the one I like most. Um, yeah. Um, so I guess the, the, the question is, um, you know, along the lines of, you know, what does that title mean? Um, he's, he's, he's called the beloved disciple, right? Yeah. Uh, and it depends on how you, you translate that. Some, some, uh, um, some Bible translations or versions will translate it as, um, the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, but, uh, you know, we see, uh, you know, why he had such an affinity for John. It may have just been because he was the youngest, you know, and he's, you know, um, he knew that he was going to live the longest and have such an influence on the church. Um, so, um, so we see that there's several places in there that, we see a reference to the beloved disciple. One of them is when Jesus is on the cross, right? Oh, yeah, and, and that's really the the first one. So it's in John chapter nineteen. Jesus is on the cross, and um, um, he says uh, to John, he says, "Behold your mother," and and or to his mother, he says, "Behold your son." And then it says, from that moment on, that disciple took her into his home, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have um, mm -hmm. uh, at the uh, the end of the gospel, mm -hmm. you have um, you have the resurrection. Uh, I'm trying to think right now. There's also uh, I'm just looking at some verses. I'm I'm on a different tab right now, cheating. <laughs> But oh, okay. I'm looking at some verses and it says just a little bit lower down. So John 19, you just said John 19, 27. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And then the death of Jesus, we're at John 1935. And right. or I'll do the verse before John 1934. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing out a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may also believe. Are they talking about John right now? Yes. Well, you know, that's all controversial in, in scholarship itself. You know, um, the, the gospel of John, you know, authorship is 
um, a big point of debate. Um, I would fall into the into the category of scholars who would say it's John the Apostle, without a doubt. And I, I think that there's just not enough evidence to say that John the Apostle had nothing to do with this writing. There are people who would say, you know, there's so many different candidates. Um, um, some have even suggested John the Baptist as the as the author, which I find very impossible to believe since he's beheaded. <laughs> but but you get scholar; these people get published, you know, which is, I guess, the whole the whole key. But um, I guess that is the question. You know, is the beloved the, the beloved disciple has to be one of the twelve? And I think yeah. it only makes sense that it's John. Certainly, tradition, uh, the um, um, a lot of the fathers of the early church, you know, identified the um, the beloved disciple as John, um, yeah. one of the twelve. Um, there's one particular uh, early church father, Saint Irenaeus, and Saint Irenaeus, um, he was a second century. Um, Bishop, Bishop of Lyon, and he, um, you know, lived uh, probably, you know, most of his life in the second century. So like from like 120 AD, probably to the end of that century somewhere, could have gone into the next century, but probably died right around the turn of the century. But he identifies um, the beloved disciple as as the disciple of the Lord who leaned upon his breast at the last supper. Right. So um, now what I love about St. Irenaeus is his connection to the apostle himself. What is that connection? The connection is that Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. And Polycarp, or St. Polycarp, was the bishop of Smyrna. And Smyrna was one of the seven churches that the book of Revelation was written to. And so Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle himself. So you have John the Apostle at the end of the first century. He brings Polycarp into the faith. And Polycarp, in turn, brings Irenaeus into the faith. All right? So... And Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, one of the seven churches that the book of Revelation is written to. So that's why I love reading Irenaeus. And certainly not everything Irenaeus says is, you know, plausible, but um, he has this connection to one of the 12 apostles, you know. So, um, and there's, you know, there's just so many other of the early church fathers. Uh, Eusebius, if you read the writings of Eusebius, he was a historian and he also uh, by citing other sources, you know, uh, argues that John the Apostle was the the author of the fourth gospel and the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So, and so, you know, I, you know, so why did he love John? He may have loved his youthful innocence. You know what I mean? It's like, here's a guy who has, you know, all the right intentions, but boy, he needs to grow up, you know? And uh, so I, we don't know. Interesting. Know, but... It's it's interesting that it's unclear um, why that wouldn't yeah. just be specified. I mean, I'm looking at the verse that you keep referencing with the Last Supper, and it looked like, you know, 
John 21, verse 20, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom, whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, look, who, Lord, who is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? So it's just con- consistently uh, referring to him as the yes. one. Why was that so... This is, I don't know. Is there like a lot of meaning here? Why is it a big deal that John allegedly leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper? That seems like a pretty small thing. Um, well, it shows the the, the closeness uh, of oh. them as well. So, I mean, and when you, okay, so, <laughs> um, you know, if we get a table for 12, <laughs> you know I mean, we're... <laughs> We're sitting, you know, with the high tables and chairs, you know, and, you know, we're all given our space, right? You know, because you don't want uh, someone who's, uh, you know, left-handed sitting to your right, you know, all this stuff, you know, we, we want our space. But in the ancient world, the way they would have eaten dinner, supper, right? would have been, you know, sitting on the floor, maybe with some cushions or something like that, uh, and reclining on one elbow, right? So if you're reclining on your left elbow, you'd be eating with your hands, with your right hand, right? That's the traditional way. So now think about it. If John is to his right, to Jesus' right, John is already leaning close to Jesus by leaning on his left elbow, okay? So he would have been right in the proximity, right close to Jesus to be, to be able to do that. So, mm-hmm. but remember too, to be, what, what was the request of uh, the mother of James and John, right? To, to have one sit on your right and one sit say. on your left. Yeah. So, um, so John was definitely to Jesus's right. We don't know if James was to the left or what, but, uh, but, but John definitely was close. And so uh, that was definitely a sign of uh, affection, a sign of uh, uh, favoritism. You know? So it's good. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that story that you bring up uh, about John, uh, about Peter um, turning and seeing uh, the one who reclined on Jesus's chest and says, what about him? <laughs> right? If you read that, um, do, you, do you have it in front of you? I do. I do. Yeah. Okay. So read that um, passage. It's, it's a great yeah. passage. Um, okay. I'll do a little bit before and a little bit after. So we'll just start at, oh, it kind of, yeah. John 21 verse 17 to 22. We'll do that. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know, all things, you know, that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger and you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but you were, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. How does Peter die? Uh, Peter dies by means of crucifixion as well. Doesn't he? Only he is upside down. I was about to say. Yes. Okay. So still talking about Peter. Oh, yeah, so go ahead. in John 21, it's after what you read, right? Mm, so yeah. there's, you read that part about Peter being reinstated. Because uh, remember, Peter denied Jesus 
three times. And so three times now he's being brought back in. He asked, Jesus asked Peter mm-hmm. three times, do you love me? Right. So, um, so he's kind of like reinstating Peter. Um, and it's right after that, because he says, follow me. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the last thing he said. And then you have this encounter with Peter and the beloved disciple. Right. Mm-hmm. Beginning in verse 20. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the this was the one that who had leaned against Jesus at the supper and said, "Lord, who's going to betray you?" And when Peter saw him, he asked, "Lord, what about him?" And so yeah. Jesus what answered, about him? You know, what about him? Doesn't, yeah. doesn't say what about John. <laughs> what about you know what about him? You know, it's like <laughs> talking about me <laughs> right in front of my face, kind of thing. You know, um, but he says, "What about him?" And um, Jesus, Jesus answered, said to him. What if I want him to remain until I come? What about that? What are you going to do? Right? So, so <laughs> it's, it's funny if you think about what, how this interaction is taking place. And he says, what concern is it of yours? Just follow me. Right? Yeah. So the word spread among the brothers that the disciple would not die. Now, how do you get that? You know, I mean, it's... But Jesus uh, had not told him that he would not die. Just what if I want him to remain until I come? What concern of it is of yours? Now, the reason I find that um, little interaction interesting is because there was actually a legend that John the Apostle did not die. You know, it was, there was, um, it's, a, it's an apocryphal story. You know, so it's it's not true. I don't know of anyone who believes it, um, but it's especially interesting that there was this legend uh, that John was given the same privilege as Enoch and Elijah, that he was was taken up into heaven like Enoch and Elijah was. Um, but there's no evidence for this, and like I said, it's really uh, just an, a legend uh, that that no one really believes, but. You know, your question, you know, how, what was John's cause of death? You know, what, what, well, that wasn't it. <laughs> there, there was, uh, so I think that there was the fact that there's this interaction between Peter, Jesus, and John, and um, this belief that comes out of it that he would not die. And then somehow after John does die, this, this legend, uh, this apocryphal story comes about uh, which said that he that he was taken up into heaven like Elijah and Enoch. So is there recorded is John's death recorded in the Bible or no, no, his, uh, it is not recorded. Um, so what we have is uh, historical evidence of um, the early church fathers, uh, martyrologies, and things like that. Uh, which would be, uh, you know, we, we know of the 12 apostles that 10 died by martyrdom, right? Um, Judas uh, took his own life, so that's 11. And then we have John, who is likely the only one to have died of natural causes. Now, there's another story about John and how he came to be exiled. Now, he was certainly arrested. He was brought from Ephesus to Rome. He stood trial. And this is um, after Jesus's death. Yes, this is after Jesus's death. 
this is, you know, toward the end of John's life. And um, so what's going on? You know, you have uh, John's gospel and, um, um, you know, his other writings, you know, the book of Revelation. You know, these are all written, you know, probably in the last decade of the first century. So what's going on there? You have the persecution under the emperor uh, Domitian. Okay, and he he reigned from probably about uh, I think it's like his years are probably around eighty one I think it is to ninety six, so um, so he has John brought to Rome. He stands trial, and John was sentenced to a real gruesome death. Uh, and you know whether this story is true or not, you know who knows, but. Uh, is this was, in the Bible or where was no, this? No, this is not in the Bible. No. Huh. So, where is it at? Um, it's um, in uh, someone's writings. Like the name escapes me right now. I, I just I can't. But uh, uh, he uh, supposedly was to be boiled in oil, <gasps> and um, so this is in the Colosseum, and. You know, the fire is lit, the oil is heated, and John is brought out, and he is thrown into the oil. And then the miracle happens where he is totally unfazed, right? Uh, People see this, many convert. And uh, as a result of that, now remember this, we don't have any hard evidence for this, but this this is how he becomes... Uh, exiled to Patmos, right? So um, he stood trial. There's supposedly there's a attempted death, uh, 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 attempted uh, uh, scene, uh, scene of martyrdom. Uh, but even so, he winds up on Patmos, and that's where he has his vision of the apocalypse. So, but after that, after the death of Domitian, and this we do know, after the death of Domitian. John is then released. He goes back to Ephesus where he spends the rest of his life and there dies of natural causes. That was a wild story. (laughs) It is. But you take that with a grain of salt. You know, we don't, we don't know uh, that to be true. So Ah, that's hard. You want that to be true. That's an epic story. You do because, you know, people see that and uh, you know, according to the story too, People convert. They see they see the miraculous, you know, and and it also it also demonstrates how hardened people's hearts can become too. Now, if Domitian knows that he was survived being thrown into oil, wouldn't that make you convert, right? But Pharaoh didn't convert, right? You know, re- releasing the Israelites, you know, he he saw the attacks on all the Egyptian gods and still didn't convert, you know. Um, so people with hardened hearts, you know, they're 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 a tough catch, you know. But as long as anyone's open. if I saw someone boiled like a beignet and come out unscathed, I just I that's pretty hard to deny. Yes, it is for you and me. <laughs> <laughs> but for other people, it's a magic trick, you know? Yeah. So um what was the vision of the apocalypse? I don't want to skip over that. The entire book of Revelation. Is, oh, that was by John? Yes. Yes. So oh. John's exiled on Patmos and 
he's the one that has the vision of the book of Revelation. Yeah. So, I didn't so know that of, John was the so, author of the book of Revelation. I'm sorry? I didn't know that John was the author of the book of Revelation. Yes, well, you'll get you'll get uh, debates among uh, scholars over that as well, but it's attributed to John. In fact, but but the author even mentions his name. He goes, "I John," right? So, but the question is, is it the same John? You know, so is there another John? Oh, there's lots of Johns. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty uncommon name. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but some people, you know, they would they would argue even. Even that, uh, you know, the gospel itself went through several editions, which, you know, we can see evidence of that. Um, so, you know, we don't have to argue that John um, penned every word in the order that it is. Uh, but to deny Johannine authorship outright, which some people do, um, I find very difficult to believe. Um, and some of the people would argue um, that the book of Revelation is written by a different John. Again, I, I, I don't think that there's any um, conclusive evidence that would argue against it. You can make some good arguments, but I think even those arguments fall short a little bit. So, for example, some people will say, oh, well, you know, um, the author of the uh, Apocalypse uses a different word for lamb than the author of the, the gospel. And I say, you know, that's legitimate. But if you look at the language and the, the words that John uses in his own gospel, you see uh, that passage that you read um, about, do you love me? Well, in the Greek, there's two different words for love being used, right? There's, there's uh, phileo and there's uh, agape. Now, uh, uh, Philena, uh, so do you love me? So two different words for love. We see that with uh, the word for to see in John's God. Sight is very important. Uh, it, it's a really a, a, a euphemism for faith, right? To be able to see um, in, in John's gospel. Yeah, so the healing of the blind man, right? What he's doing, he's not just getting his vision back. He's coming to faith is what's happening there. That's John chapter nine, right? But see, even in there, Jesus is using, um, Jesus, John is using different words for the word to see. In one case, he uses blepo, and in other words, he uses arao, you know? So there's different words. Um, um, and the same thing oh. for the word to know, the word to know, gnosko or oida, there's different words. And he goes back and forth using these words synonymously yeah. with no real... Um, structure to them or no real, you know, uh, there's no set pattern. He just kind of uses them interchangeably. So, yeah. so the fact that someone would say, you know, the author of the book of Revel uh, book of revelation or the apocalypse, you know, uses different words. Well, I say, you know, that's legitimate until you see the way the author of the gospel uses words. So, um, right, right, right. Yeah. Man, now I just want to start talking about revelations, but well, we can't. <laughs> Not this. That's time. another Next one. Time. That's another whole thing. Next time. Well, um, I enjoy these conversations. Clearly, I mean, you're a fantastic speaker. But just for somebody who might be listening and has more questions than I do, do you think you have any like books or just resources you could point them towards to kind of continue their education on this topic? 
Um, there are some, there are some um, very good commentaries, um, both Catholic and Protestant. Um, I always like going to uh, the ancient, um, I, I forget what it's called, ancient um, commentary. I forget what it is, but it's actually a, a Protestant um, a publication, but it actually uses, uh, refers a lot to a lot of the early church fathers and their their interpretations, just so you can kind of see how they do it. Um, word biblical commentary, I think, is very good. Um, um, if you're looking for something a little more heady, you know, um, you know, anchor Bible commentary. I'm not thrilled with that commentary on the book of Revelation, though. Um, and I hope she's not watching. <laughs> but uh, um, but there's there's some uh, uh, Ignatius Bible commentary, I think, is very good. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, those those are the kind of the sources that I go to Ignatius Bible commentary. Um, okay. So, um, I'm trying to think, what do I have behind me? Oh, Navarra Bible commentary. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, gotta go back look at my sources. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Scan your library and then get back to me. Yeah. And I just want to make this uh, an available resource for anybody because it. If you've got a book of the Bible and then you wrote another book of the Bible, you're clearly worth learning about. And um, plus it's three good letters, be... we didn't what even talk. Put... There's there's first, second, and third epistle of John as well. Okay. So so next to Paul, next to Paul, who wrote thirteen, at least thirteen letters. Some argue fourteen. Um, you have John, who has five books attributed to him. So oh. Boy, we're gonna have a couple more podcasts, guys. <laughs> That's good. Well, this has been great. I mean, I think just I'm the youngest of my family, and Me too. it's so heart. Oh, look at that! It's so yeah. heartwarming to know just like the love that God has for the youngest, the most curious. Maybe even I don't know. I want to believe that John was a little silly. Just you know, he kind of got the better end of the stick. He didn't get crucified upside down. So you can think sure. that he lived a good life, and he avoided yeah. being boiled. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would like to think that I'd be friends with, with John if he was alive today in 2023. Yeah, I would, I would, uh, I would like to think, uh, that I would be as well. I think, uh, I have a lot of questions for him myself. So, yeah, um, he seems like a bit of an activist if he's this involved in the Bible. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So, okay. It's great. Well, I, appreciate your time i i hope that you come back because i still have more questions somehow and uh, i just appreciate your your insight you're a great speaker so thank you so thank much thank you thank you like i i appreciate your inviting me uh to be part of this conversation it was great thank you so much nice meeting you nice meeting you too